0: Our reading is taken from Revelation. We began a series some weeks ago on the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor that will be found in the book of Revelation, written by the Apostle John. So we're reading today from Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And if you've got your Bibles with us, it's one of the easiest books to find in the Bible because it's the very last one. So it's at the very, very end of your Bibles, Revelation chapter 2. And verses 12 to 17, and this is reading from the New International Version of the Bible. To the angel of the church in Pergamon writes, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me, Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those among you who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. May God bless to us now that reading of his word. If you were to walk down the Caicos Valley alongside the river of that name in modern-day Turkey, you would eventually come across a very tall conical-type hill upon which would sit a load of ruins, it would tower above you up to a thousand feet and that would be the city of Pergamon. Not a wealthy city like the cities of Ephesus and Smyrna, not a city sitting on a vital trade route like these particular cities, but a city that had been the capital of the Greek Empire and then later on became the capital of the Roman Empire in the east. In fact, it's not to overcook it to say that while Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire in the west, Pergamum was the capital of the Roman Empire in the east. Like Rome itself, Rome sits on seven hills and Pergamum is perched at the top of a thousand feet feet hill, towering across the surrounding countryside. In fact, the very name Pergamum literally means citadel because it stands um, invincible upon the top of this mighty hill. Pliny called it, by far, the most famous city in Asia. And by the time the Apostle John was writing his book in Revelation, Pergamum had been the capital of Asia Minor for almost 400 years. It stood tall, it stood proud, towering above the lesser cities. And you saw that in some of the photographs taken of the ancient ruin of Pergolum. But it towers above all the locality and can be seen for miles around. And from its illustrious heights, you can see the Mediterranean Sea 15 miles away. But it was not just a formidable place, a towering place. It was also a famous place of learning. It literally was a tower, a pillar of learning, if you like. It held a library that contained, according to um, Plutarch, 200,000 volumes. It was second only to the famous library in Egypt, the Library of Alexandria. And Alexandria and Pergamum competed for fame. They were a bit like modern-day Cambridge and Oxford, both claiming to be the better university, the better library, the better seat of learning. So great was this rivalry that on one occasion um, Pergamum tried to steal the famous curator of the Library of Alexandria, and as a consequence, the Pharaoh decided to impose an embargo upon papyrus, which was the modern, the old, ancient form of writing material. To impose an embargo upon Pergamum, they wouldn't receive any papyrus; so they couldn't actually write or, or, or record. And as a consequence, the king of Pergamum got all these scholars to get together and they began to work on a new type of writing material. And after great research, they invented a a, a medium of writing called parchment that we also called, called vellum. That's written on basically animal skin, the skin is shaved and smoothed and polished, and it's actually a far superior form of writing, it lasts far far longer than actually papyrus. And eventually vellum, or parchment, took over in the world as the chosen form of writing material. We've got loads of parchments in the British Museum, going back to the medieval uh, uh, period and beyond. And what's fascinating is parchment itself is actually derived from the name Pergamon. Originally, parchment was the Pergamon Charter, He Pergamon Charter. And Pergamon Charter became the Pergamon, and eventually it became parchment. So the actual writing material owes its origins, according to legend, to the city of Pergamon. It was also famous for its many temples, a bit like Ephesus. Famous for his many temples, particularly the vast temple that you can see up on your screens right now—the temple to Zeus, Zeus, the head of the, um, the 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 Greek gods, the king of kings for the ancient Greeks—and his temple was huge. and It sat with this with this, um, this platform that came out from the mountain like a uh, like a like a like a, uh, um, a, um, a springboard you'd see in a in uh, in a. In a, in a in a, a, a barb, a bar. So it, it came, strutted out in, into the hillside and on that platform there was a giant altar and on that altar sacrifices were burnt um, day and night at such a rate that the, the um, platform was always smoking and from a distance it would look like an active volcano. It was also famous for the temple to Athena goddess of wisdom and in the in the in the library complex there was a massive statue of Athena it had had temples to Dionysus the god the god of wine and pleasure and particularly it was famous for the dog uh, for the god of Asclepius and Asclepius was a famous god of helium that existed in in um, in Pergamon and Pergamon was famous because people would go to this god of helium and go to his temple to get healing from miles and miles and miles around. It was, it was, it's been called the ancient lords uh, of um, the East. It was a place where people flocked to, for various reasons. And you can imagine people looking at that mighty hill of Pergamum and seeing that jutting platform that came out from the side that was part of the temple to Zeus. And it, it looked a bit like a seat And the first thing I want you to notice in this passage is just that, the seat, the seat. Because Jesus writes to the church and says in verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Jesus is telling the troubled Christians in this city that he knows what it's like. He understands their situation. I know where you live. The word here for live is quite unusual because normally when any of the writers of the New Testament talk to Christians living, they use a certain word which is pyrokin, which means temporary place. We get the word parish from the Greek word pyrokin. But the word here that, that, that um, John uses isn't pyrokin, or Jesus uses, isn't pyrokin, it's katakin, And katakin actually refers to a permanent place. And it could be but what Jesus is saying is he understands the place you find yourself fixed. He understands that that place may be a painful place. He understands that the place may be a place of suffering. He understands it may not be the place where you want to be. He understands that. I know where you live, he says. And for these Christians, it was quite a terrible place to be because it was literally like living on the edge of a volcano. A place where at any moment they could be taken and flogged and beaten and killed. It was a place of persecution. And God understands our situation. He understands where we are, wherever we are. In an unhappy job, in a difficult relationship, in a family that doesn't understand you being a Christian, in a street that perhaps has crime on it or difficulties. He understands this. He says to you this morning, I know where you live. And the situation for the Christians in Pergamum was a very troubled one, a place that could explode into violence at any moment. He describes it, Jesus, in verse 13 in two ways. He says he speaks of Pergamum as being where Satan lives and where Satan has his throne. So why does Jesus use such powerful and explosive terminology to describe this particular city? Well, some have suggested it was because of the Temple of Zeus. The Temple of Zeus looked like a giant throne from a distance. The platform coming out and the, the, the arms of the temple going around look like the armrests of a chair. And you can see that in the East German Museum in Berlin. There's a mock-up of the Temple of, um, temple of Zeus in, in, the, in the East German Museum in Berlin. Some suggested that's the reason. Others have suggested because the god Eclipius was in fact a famous god who was represented by the figures of snakes. He was a God of healing and involved in, in the process of the healing. It could involve the priest leaving you in a darkened room and releasing snakes into it, having put you in a trance. That would probably terrify me, I don't know about you. But, um, and the, and, the, and the, um, the, the snakes are meant to bring healing. And this is the badge of the Royal Army Medical Corps even today. And you'll see that snakes are clearly associated with the whole idea of healing. And we even see that people wearing that badge today. But for the Christians, the symbol of the snake often conjured up the symbol of Satan. Satan in the Garden of Eden, temptation. The idea of him whispering up, leading people off astray. Could it be that's the reason that, Paul, uh, that um, Jesus describes it as the seat of Satan? I think these are interesting ideas, and it may maybe they all were part of it, but the main reason that Jesus describes it as the seat, or the place where Satan had his throne, was because it was the centre of Roman administration. And by that time in the history of Rome, the worship of Caesar had become essentially part of being a Roman citizen. But if you wanted to live in a Roman city, every year you'd have to stand before a magistrate. And you would have to take a pinch of incense and burn it on the altar to Caesar. And then you had to say in the hearing of the magistrate, the words, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. If you wanted to remain in a Roman city, if you wanted to work in a Roman city, if you wanted to call yourself a Roman citizen, if you wanted to have any hope of having food upon your table, you had to make that declaration. And then the Romans didn't care. You could worship 20 other gods. You could do what you want as long as those gods didn't cause offense to to Roman society. But you had to make that declaration. It wasn't so much a theological statement, it was a political statement. It was the way that Romans had come to devise a way of unifying the empire. The empire was vast, it covered many different nations and many different religions. And generally speaking, the Romans didn't care what you did, as long as you showed loyalty to Rome. So that statement, Caesar is Lord, determined whether you were patriotic. It determined whether you were loyal to Rome. And upon that statement, upon that sacrifice... Your very means of earning, keep, and remain within the city depended. And this is the reason why this city was described as the seat of Satan. Because so many Christians were suffering because they refused to make that statement. It was a city in which the pro-council for the, uh, for the whole of Asia Minor lived. And the proconsul, when he walked down the street, had someone go before him carrying a giant sword. And that giant sword was a ceremonial sword that stood for the right to execute those citizens that tried to rebel against the state and to rebel against the empire. Paul refers to this in Romans 13 verse 4. He is a Roman citizen, he understands this. He's writing to the Roman church and he says this, he says, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. Rome bore the sword, and the sword was being used against believers who refused to say Caesar is Lord. That's why Pergamum was Satan's throne, particularly at the time that John is writing, because during the time John is writing, one of the most fearsome evil men ever to rule as an emperor, Domitian, was ruling far worse than Caligula far worse um, uh, than, than all the other um, Nero and all the other Roman Empire, emperors he was the very first emperor that insisted on being worshipped Nero was mad Domitian wasn't mad he was just evil Jesus says I know where you live and yet Christians had remained faithful he says in verse 13, yet you remain faith, true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. We don't know much about Antipas at all. There's nothing written. We've got a few myths that arises, often arises among, um, among ancient saints. Tradition has it he was roasted, roasted slowly to death in a brass ball, normally reserved for preparing the meat for sacrifice. Years later, we, we are told historically in, in, in historical accounts, that a group of Christian stonecutters who come from Rome were working in the, in the quarries of Pannonia um, when they were asked to carve the figure of the snake, Aclepius. and they refused to. They felt it was against their, their faith, and they were put to death there. And it says in the, um, in the documents that followed their execution that they were put to death as followers of Antipas, of Pergamon. Yet he's not writing to these Christians and saying, I understand that you're going through a moment of pain. He's not just saying that. Jesus is saying, take courage, because when I come, I will come bearing a sword. And my sword will be greater than the sword of the proconsul. My sword will be greater than the sword of Rome. My sword will be greater than any sword that anyone in the empire ever carries. He says in verse 12, to the angel of the church in, per- in per- Pergamum write this, these are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus is telling both the church and the people living in Pergamum that while the sword the proconsul carries may be sharp, is not as sharp as his sword. And that when he comes and when he returns, we need to fear the justice and judgment of God. You know, we have courts in which some very clever barristers and lawyers can argue the toss and argue that black is white and white is black and gravity doesn't exist. And that basically they can bring whole loads of arguments to bamboozle the jury and end up with an answer that's just an unsafe answer, but you can't convict on that. We live in a state where you've got the ability of ambiguity there. When God returns, when Jesus comes, there will be no ambiguity in his courts. There will be no bribery. There will be no corruption. There will be no untruth or lies or deception. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. He will bring total truth and total light to everything anyone in the world has ever done. And we won't be able to pretend and argue and defeat him and beguile him with our arguments and with our excuses. He will know and we will know because we will know he knows. And that sword of judgment is so far sharper than any sword that any court in this land or this world can give. Jesus isn't a meek and mild saviour. He is a glorious and loving saviour. But he also has power. And comes bearing a sharp sword. And so he says to the church that he's encouraged by their faithfulness. But then he talks about their sinfulness. We first of all see the seat and then we see the sin. The sin, he makes this clear in verse 14. Nevertheless, he says, I have a few things against you. There are some among you of hold to the teaching of Balaam. Who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual Immorality. Now, Balaam is a notorious character in the Old Testament. You'll find him written about in three chapters in the book of Numbers. And he was a prophet. He wasn't a prophet of Yahweh, he was a pagan prophet, but he did listen to the prophecies that came from God. And he, he's the one involved with the famous talking ass, talking donkey. And um, he was asked by the Moabite king Balak in Numbers 22 to bring a curse upon the people of Israel. They just escaped from Israel, uh, escaped from Egypt. They'd wandered around the, uh, 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 the wilderness for 40 years and they'd now crossed into the promised land or beginning to inhabit the promised land. And they provided a threat to the Moabite people. So Balak the king comes along. He tries to employ... Um, ba- uh, Balaam three times to curse. Three times ba- Balaam doesn't curse. He blesses because God tells him to bless the people of Israel. And then Balaam disappears. And in the in the in the in the quietness of that disappearing, he suddenly reemerges later on, having been behind a conspiracy to defeat the Israelites from within. And that conspiracy was that Balaam encouraged the Moabites to basically um, use their women to encourage the the Israelite men to marry the Moabite women and to introduce the gods of the Moabites into Israel and that's exactly what happened. And there was a a, a horrendous situation where the people of Israel began to go away from Yahweh and God judges the people of Israel and 24,000 people die. 24,000 people die. And eventually Balaam himself is killed. We read about that in Joshua. Why were they killed? Because they followed the ways of Balaam. And Peter writes about Balaam in 2 Peter 2. He says this, he says, They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the ways of Balaam, son of Pazir, who loved the wages of wickedness. And Jude writes about Balaam in Jude chapter verse 11. He says, Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. Balaam was a spirit of compromise. Balaam was a spirit of assimilation. Balaam is the exact opposite to holiness. We're called to be different. We're called to be holy. Balaam says, don't be holy, assimilate with prophet. Prophet should be your God. Follow this way and you'll live the richest life you can possibly on earth. But spiritually, you'll be in poverty. And perhaps socially, you'll be in poverty. And Perhaps some people at work and within your family will regard you as a loony bin because you follow the, the, Jesus Christ, the living God. Because the ways of the church are not the ways of the world. And it's the greatest problem in the church right now is there are Christian ministers and Christian preachers and Christian writers who are saying, Christians assimilate. Take the teaching of the world and make it part of the teaching of the church. This is happening over and over throughout our country, throughout the West. It is... The error of Balaam. You see, we're called to be different. If our Father God is holy, 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 we are called to be holy. Not holy like them out there, holy like our God up here, holy like God Himself. Jesus was killed because He was different. If He was the same as the Pharisees and the scribes and the people of Jerusalem, 2,000 years ago, do you think they would have put him on a cross? No. They're welcoming him to his part, their parties. We are called to be different. And Jesus hates it when his, when, his, when his people begin to compromise and assimilate themselves to the ways of the world. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how could it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything. It is said to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. That's quite scary, isn't it? If we lose our role of being different, we lose our existence as Christians. We have no purpose. We are rubbish. See, Antipas, the bishop of Pergamon, was not like that. Like the bishop Polycarp from Smyrna. He stood up. He was faithful. He stood tall and refused to compromise. And so he's given a very title of Christ. There's a title of Christ in this passage. Jesus in chapter Revelation 1 verse 5 is called Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness. And in chapter 3 verse 14 it says this, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. Faithful witness is a title of Jesus and Antipas is given that title. He is a faithful witness. You see, Jesus hates the spirit of compromise, of assimilation, of syncretism. We're not called to be mirrors of the world. We're called to be mirrors of Jesus Christ. And that costs. That makes us salty. That makes us different. It's part of our holiness. What benefit is it to the world if they look at the church and see everything they see in the world? I believe this is one of the reasons why our churches aren't as big and as thriving as they once were because they've got nothing to offer. They just reflect back to the world, its values. We've got to be different. We've got to reflect the love of Christ. Real love. And real love is not saying yes to everything. When you love a child, those of you you have been parents, you know, you don't love your child by saying yes to everything, do you? Yes, of course you may eat that slug. That poison beside the slug, yeah, that's no problem. It tastes a bit bitter, but of course you can, my dear. It's a car, of course you can run out in front of it. We don't say that to our children, do we? We don't treat our children just as a yes machine and say yes, 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 because that's not loving. And God is a loving God says to us no, because he loves us and wants to protect us from the car, from the slug, from the poison. He loves you, he loves me, he wants to protect our world from the consequences of, of sexual immorality, of breaking down the definition of the family of seeing that actually love is something that's more than just a three or four year game and then we get a divorce and we separate and get another partner and another partner and another partner the fragmentation of the family in this country is one of the biggest causes of the depression that we find in young people and in older people and the fact that our our society is breaking down at its roots it's because we walked away from the Bible and we say hey I'm bright, I'm liberated, I'm intelligent I'm not like those unsophisticated Christians who haven't got a mind to think of themselves I think we're the mass of the herd we're called to be different as Christians and that can cost, it costs the Christians in Pergamum. so we see in this passage the seat we see the sin and finally we see the sustenance the sustenance because while it may be a risky business to be a Christian in the 21st century it may be a risky business to be a Christian in Pergamum. It made you an outcast. It made you someone who would never get in, in society and we we'll hear more about that next week when we talk about the next church. The reality was what the Christians got was something far greater. But it was a difficulty. I remember as a young man, as a young, as a young man growing up in a Christian home in South London, that I struggled with this, being a Christian because I saw my friends going to parties and getting drunk and just having lots of girlfriends and having sex all the rest of it. And I felt myself deprived. I felt myself deprived as a Christian. And I remember when I went and left home and went into the Royal Air Force, I kept my faith for a while and then I backslid. And I did all the things that my parents had me not to do. And was I happy? Was I joyous? I used to come back from the pub sometimes and lay on my bed in RAF Larbrook and weep because I'd lost something great. I had no peace, I had no direction, and when the alcohol wore off, I had a great big headache. My life wasn't as great as I thought it would become. It wasn't the great big Eden, the paradise that the world promises. My life sucked. And when I met a couple of Christians in IF Larbrook, and they brought me back to the Lord Jesus, and one night I knelt by my bed and gave my heart back to the Lord, and that's when God changed me massively. You know the Christians in Pergamum. It was difficult because because they they didn't take the oath and they didn't take the oath of the of the local guilds. It meant that they couldn't go to the guild feast if they were a tailor. They couldn't go to the tailor's guild feast. If they were a baker, they couldn't go to the baker's guild feast. They couldn't go to the guilds, and the guilds were where the parties were. So socially, their life would have had nothing. Their diet would have been emptied socially. And of course, in those days, you know, orgies were very common in the, in the feasts and in the temples. In fact, sex was part of the worship of some of the goddesses, particularly the female goddesses. Sacred prostitution was part of that worship. And therefore, sex was very common outside marriage. And it would have been very easy for some of the Christians to think they're missing out. Being a Christian wasn't quite so great socially. And yet God says, listen, what the world offers you there." is nothing, nothing, not even a mere smidgen of what you receive when you know the Lord Jesus. He offers us spiritual food. He says in verse 17, To the one who is victorious, that's the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden uh, manna. This is not talking just about those who survive martyrdom. This is talking about overcoming in work. When you overcome in work, when you overcome in home, when you overcome temptation in your life, God gives us hidden manna. He gives us a food that's so much deeper and so much more rewarding than what the world can give. Manna, of course, is the food that was given to the people of Israel. You read about Exodus sixteen, food that came down from heaven in the morning. It was it was described as both heavenly food and the food of angels. Psalm 78 verse 25 says human beings ate the bread of angels he sent them all the food they can eat this manna is spiritual food you know since I've been a Christian I've had a spiritual sense of satisfaction and fulfillment you cannot give anywhere else certainly never had it before I came to know the Lord and Jesus when he was arguing with the Pharisees about manna he said to them this he said very truly I tell you it's not Moses that has given you the bread of heaven But it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that came down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Your food is limited. You've had your breakfast, but you'll need your lunch because the effect and the energy of breakfast wears off. You'll have your lunch and you'll find then a few hours later that the taste of that and the energy that gives you will wear off. So you'll have your supper. That's the nature of food. But the food that God gives us in Jesus Christ is eternal food. It's hidden manna because it's hidden from the world and only those who know the Lord Jesus can receive it. The world can take your possessions. The world can take your reputation. The world can even take your life. But it can't take your Lord. It cannot take your salvation. And that's what the Christians of Pergamum realized and knew. And Jesus doesn't only promise us this food. He promises us not just a heavenly food. He promises a heavenly pass. And he says in verse 17, To the one who is victorious, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. The revelation is notoriously difficult to understand. There's lots of things in there which require interpretation. The scholars have battled over just what this white stone means for a long time. And I've, I've come across in, in preparing this message at least seven different explanations. There are two that really for me stand out. The first is it was very common at the time in Jesus and the time that John was writing that in the legal system that um, they used small Um, pebbles white and black pebbles and the jury had a white and black pebble and when someone was in the dock they would give to the judge either a black pebble meaning they're guilty or a white pebble meaning they're innocent it was the pebble of acquittal and I love that the name written upon it was the name of Jesus Christ because he died in our place and provided the way in which we are forgiven we are acquitted That's one of my favorite interpretations for the white stone. But there's one that actually also I also like and I wanted to give this to you and you can take your pick which you prefer. In the time of the Romans, they used to have what's called a tersera and terceras were like tickets. They were either made of marble, marble stone, white marble stone. They were made of metal. They could be made of copper. And they were like a, a little tablet, small tablet. And on that tablet was written your name. And you've probably heard of patrons, it all comes from the Roman Empire, and you'd have a patron, a big house who had, who had patronage, and the, uh, the patron, the big Roman house, would issue these tassera, these, these, these plates, these metal tablet, uh, these uh, marble tablets, to different people, members of the family, members of their household, and they would entitle them to, to food, to shelter. And you could be able to knock on the door of the house and present your tablet to the, um, to, the, to the servant and they would know that you're entitled to so much, so much food or to stay in the house overnight. The tessera was a ticket. It was also given to champions. When they won a, a sport, they were given a tessera because they, they, they got top of the, the, the sport that enable them to get, to get into any future games for nothing. They would have this ticket, this tessera. They were given to people for feasts. You're getting invited to a feast and you'll be given a tablet and it have your name on it. And you go to the door and you present this and you'll be let in. They were also given to gladiators. And gladiators, if they did really well in the ring, if they survived many fights and got the acclaim of the people, they will be given a tessera. And on the tessera would be written two letters, S-P. S-P. And S-P basically stood for specatus, specatus. And specatus is the word from which we get the word spectator. And specatus meant that you no longer had to fight as a gladiator. You could now stand and watch. You had earned your retirement. You could live the rest of your life without violence. You could live the rest of your life in peace. And I love that idea. But Jesus promises all of us at the end, a tessera on which is written SP, that our fight, our battle is done, and that we can stand with the other witnesses and watch the battle of the other believers until Jesus returns. Spectatus, spectatus, spectator. And I believe that Jesus wants to give each one of us that white stone. He wants to give us that white stone. On that white stone will be written... Sandra Spectactus, Terry Spectactus. All of you could have that white stone if we just remain faithful to the Lord Jesus. The Christians in Pergamon were suffering. They were living on the edge of a volcano. They were under pressure, but they decided to follow Jesus and not follow the world. May we do likewise. Amen.